Good morning, everybody. Thanks again for joining the Academy Securities podcast this morning. Look, this is General Spider Mark. Normally, I would defer to Andy Robinson, former Marine, uh, absolutely wonderful patriot, combat veteran. Andy works in our Academy Securities office, and he would normally host these. I've asked him if I could take over his duties this morning because of the topic, and I want to talk about the Putin-President Trump summit that just took place. There's so much media buzz about that. I asked him if I could probably step in, and, and Andy was kind enough to say, sure, go redhead spider. So Andy is with us. Also on with us today is Rachel Washburn, Army captain, combat veteran, former intel officer, and served with the special ops in two different deployments into Afghanistan. We're absolutely blessed to have her on our team. And Peter Shear. Peter is, as many of you know, is a macro strategist and what I call, I hope it's a blush-inducing introduction to Peter, but he really is a market savant, has his finger on the pulse in such unique ways. He keeps us going in the right direction and better understanding what may be plainly in front of him may not be plainly in front of us, but he does a magnificent job of helping us understand what's taking place in the market. So what I'd like to talk about today is on the heels of the Putin-Trump summit, I'd really like to talk about seven topics very, very briefly. I'll go through those. But I think it's important that we lay these things out here. First and foremost, look, we're in incredibly political times. We always have a very much a, a focus on our political context, our political dynamic. But I think what we need to all, as citizens of this great democracy, is we need to kind of walk away a little bit from the partisanship of uh, that's inherent of politics. And I'm not trying to be Pollyannish or naive. I could say as a soldier all my life, I was very political, but I could never be partisan. I served for all commanders in chief, and it was not hard for me to separate what I thought was potentially a partisan view on what their politics were, and I was able to do my duty. And it would be very aspirational if we could all be able to embrace that just a little bit and realize we can contribute to the discussion and we contribute to the evaluation of how our democracy operates. But I think we should do it with a level of discourse that rises above partisanship and really gets into objective, agnostic evaluations of what we see. So again, I'd ask us all to embrace that if we can and move forward from there. The second thing about the summit is that we tend to dissect the process more than we do the product. It's analogous to watching a basketball game. You know, we're watching magnificent people dribble and pass behind the back. They're doing incredible things away from the ball, but we're not spending any time looking at the scoreboard. Look, we're putting points up. This administration, our nation is scoring points at an incredible pace. We haven't seen this in uh, recent history. ISIS is on the run. It remains inspirational and it remains certainly a, a form of violent extremism uh, that is online and continues to recruit. It's an ideology that won't go away, but its physical caliphate is completely destroyed. Our economy has never been in a stronger position. The tax cuts have been real and they've been felt throughout our every demographic within our society. The market is booming. Peter can certainly speak to that in more detail. Our foreign policy is moving in directions that no previous administrations have been able to move. Clearly, the summit with Kim Jong-un in Singapore was breathtakingly unique, and there's a lot that must be done on the heels of that. But let's focus in on the fact that this happened, and this has never happened before. So there are amazing things that are taking place in this country, and I would hope that we could all look at the scoreboard once in a while 
and stop spending all the time watching folks move and, and try to pass and try to dribble between their legs. Let's, let's look at the scoreboard once or twice. Also, I think the third thing is cooperating with Russia is a good thing. It should be an aspirational foreign policy goal. Russia is inarguably a global power. It has the second largest inventory of nuclear weapons. It's something that we must address as a matter of routine. We can also, on the other hand, recognize emphatically and without debate, their economy is in the drain and their military is not very powerful. They are aspirational. They are doing some technology developments that I think are quite significant. But if Russia were to engage with the United States and our alliances globally, they'd be destroyed. And they know that. But Russia continues to be a world player because of its nuclear capabilities and the fact that President Putin stays engaged internationally on his near abroad to, quote, stir things up. So it's okay for the United States to reach out to Russia and say, look, there's a lot we can cooperate on, and we should identify those very discrete elements and work in a very measured way to try to increase trust and therefore increase our abilities to work together because there's enough that's very obvious where we have competition. And we need to be able to address both of those equally. It's okay to say, Mr. Putin, I want to try to cooperate with you. However, there are things where we will fundamentally disagree until we can agree, and that may take a lot of time. Writer. To me as a macro analyst, it's unclear when it became a bad thing to engage in dialogue with Russia. It seems that that suddenly became a partisan issue when from every practical standpoint it makes sense to have a dialogue, get a dialogue going. We need to be part of the global stage. I think you summed it up so well. A, that it's important, and B, that that should not be viewed as a partisan decision that's good or bad. It seems to me every single sitting president has made efforts to be engaged with Russia, and it is the right thing to do, and it's become somehow weirdly politicized in a way that just doesn't make sense for our own good. Peter, I appreciate that and, and totally agree that it's difficult to have what I would call civil discourse and a reasonable person conversation when we have moved the dial so, I think, viciously and so quickly to one extreme or the other. We've lost the middle right now in a society where we're living at the extremes. And that, that we do that on a sustained basis at our own peril. And we have to be very conscious of that. So thanks for your input on that, Peter. The fourth point I'd like to make is NATO. The alliance of NATO is on very solid ground, but it does require U.S. leadership as a matter of routine. Look, the world is a better place when the U.S. leads, and the U.S. has led, frankly, quite well over the course of seven decades post-World War II Yet we've had periods where we've decided that it was okay to lead from behind. And, I'm, and I've never understood that and have been very curious as to who thought that was a good idea to describe how U.S. leadership might be engaged internationally. But when you lead, you lead from the front. You set an example, and it's important the United States continue to do that. The president's comment about NATO and the engagement of the 29 NATO partners, let me take a step back for a second and remind everyone that when NATO was formed, it had 12 nations. It now has 29. Since the early 90s, the collapse of the wall in 89, the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91, 
there has been a migration of those nations that formerly were a part of the, the Soviet empire, if you will, and their migration to what I call the light of NATO has been phenomenal, and it's one that we've all welcomed. Clearly, the challenge is, is Russia sees that as absconding with their former partners, if you will, regardless of how that partnership was formed. And so, so they see that as a threat. But let's not forget that there were legitimate strategic discussions and policy discussions about including Russia into NATO, and there's no reason why that can't be a possibility. So it's okay for us to challenge NATO, and our president is challenging NATO, specifically with the commitment, the 2% of the GDP commitment that each nation has signed up to. They signed up in 2006 to do that. Aspirationally, they, the objective is to have that accomplished by 2024. Uh, there's no reason why it should not continue, but if money's fungible. We know that. And it's not necessarily the dollars. It's what those dollars bring to the table. And I think that's where we, we continue to work this very, very precisely. So I think it's more important that we look at the function that NATO brings to the table, the aspirational goals, the agreement that values matter, and the fact that we can look at the functionality of those NATO partners and not the transaction of NATO. As we all understand, the United States of Europe are in a far better place than the divided states of Europe. When they're united, they look to the West for inspiration and values and markets. And when they are divided, and we could be marching down the path that takes Brexit to another level, then everybody's going to cut their own deal. And we've seen what happens when Europe is divided and each nation tends to play each other against the other. The past century saw the United States engaged in two wars because Europe couldn't get it together. After the second war, Europe got it together because the United States led. Let's keep at it. And that's what clearly I think this administration is trying to do. The fifth thing I'd like to talk about is our intelligence community. Our intelligence community is not infallible. They make mistakes. I've contributed and been a part of the intelligence community all my life, and I've participated, and I've contributed to some of those mistakes. So we need to be held accountable. The intelligence community absolutely always needs to be able to improve and to be self-aware of what it needs to do to improve. But what you don't need to do is to air dirty laundry in public, especially on a global stage. I disagree with the president's comment that essentially – said the IC is, in some cases, not up to the task. Uh, and he did that standing next to one of our enemies, President of Russia. I would challenge the president on that comment that he made. But the fact of the matter is, our intelligence community does a significantly phenomenal job 24-7, 365 days a year. It is absolutely eye-watering what the intelligence community can do. But that doesn't mean we can't improve and we need to. You know, there's even talk right now about having a congressional statement that affirms the validity and the professionalism of the intelligence community. And I think that effort is vestigial. It's dead on arrival. There's no reason why we need to do that. The only reason we'd be doing that, frankly, with our Congress would be for an internal consumption. You know, pat the IC on the back and tell them, hey, look, you guys are really squared away. Don't worry about what the president just said. You guys are really squared away. They don't need that. They don't need that. More importantly, the intelligence community needs to continue to do its job the way they've always done it, professionally, with a lot of self-analysis and a lot of hard work on their end, and they do that well. We don't need a statement from Congress validating any of that. We're fine. We're fine. And I would tell you, intelligence and the value of our intelligence is what really, really helps us stitch our alliances together. More than money, it's the sharing of intelligence that keeps partners partners and keeps our friends away, and it keeps those that are on the fence 
thinking that they really need to join our alliance that exists because we're willing to share and because we have shared values. So our intelligence community is in good shape. It will continue to provide some immense value as we move forward and our decision makers need to be confronted with the most difficult problems that the world's ever seen. They need to be confident in what they're seeing. Spider, you're not concerned at all that this could damage morale and you know reduce the quality of work at those agencies when they feel maybe slighted? Oh, I'm certain there are people within the intelligence community that feel slighted. But let me tell you, that's not hard to achieve within the intelligence community because they are always out there. The intelligence community leads from the front. They are always out front. They always have to take a stand. They've got to get out there. And as a result of that, they're exposed. You know, you know the old expression, you know, the higher the monkey goes up the pole, the more his ass is exposed. So the intel community gets up the pole as high as they can all the time, which means they're vulnerable. They're exposed. People will routinely see what's wrong with what they do. So it's not hard for the intelligence community to feel like they're being confronted. They're being challenged. That's what makes them so good is they'll respond to that. The intelligence community will step up. Those that can't stand that level of pressure don't deserve to be in the IC. The IC is made up of an incredibly talented men and women who understand the costs of the profession that they've embraced. They're going to be okay. So the sixth point I'd like to make is, you know, I recently read an op-ed, leadership and what would be the best quality for a leader to have. Is, is that honesty or is that courage? And I thought this was summarized so beautifully well. But you can't have honesty, you've got the courage to tell the truth. So all leaders in all industries, whether you're in government, whether you're in the military, whether you're in the clergy, whether you're in industry, whether you're in the media, whether you're in education, et cetera, you have to have the courage to tell the truth. Truth and the sacrifices to achieve that truth cannot become casualties. And, you know, and at the same time, the fourth estate, what we call the press, the media, is not infallible either. I mean, they have to be challenged. And they will always be challenged. But we've reached a point where we throw the word honesty and courage across the net all the time. And we try to evaluate all those that are involved in this discourse that we have today, that they don't measure up. They've demonstrated a lack of courage, and they're not being honest because of that lack of courage. Well, I would say let's just kind of flip that on its head and say, look, everybody – Everybody intends to be as courageous, personally courageous. Well, I'm not talking about physical courage. I'm talking about moral courage. I'm talking about personal courage. Everybody wants to be personally courageous, and everybody wants to tell the truth. Often we slip and we slide because man is fallible. But we can't allow truth to be a casualty. We've got to be able to push back where we see that level of honesty is not what it should be. And then what we call out is the courage. Not necessarily the point of honesty, but we need to push back on the courage. And let's tell each other, be courageous enough to stand up, raise your hand, and say, this is how I think, and this is what I see. Facts do matter, and my assessment is this. And let's try to leave it like that. Again, we've reached a level where, you know, the old expression, you know, let's try to take the high road. There's precious little traffic. I'd love to have everybody take that exit that gets them up to the high road. Uh, they might find that the view is pretty incredible and the ability to maintain a cadence in a case is unimpeded by those who are slowing you down because they lack the courage or the honesty. And the final thing I'd like to talk about, look, this is not the end of days. I find it immensely insulting. I've heard journalists, I've heard discussion 
that this meeting between President Trump and President Putin, the, the fact that they had this public press conference and the President of the United States made a comment, which in essence said, I believe President Putin, and I challenge my intelligence community, is analogous to our Pearl Harbor. That's insulting. Too many men and women have sacrificed too much to be thrown into that kind of rather whimsical and capricious and inappropriate, faulty, terribly faulty analogy. You look at 9-11. This isn't our 9-11. This was a conversation our president had, the president of Russia, on a global stage. And I'll be frank, there are things that our president said that I disagree with. But guess what? I've disagreed with a lot of presidents, and I've been able to follow their orders and to do the bidding of this nation irrespective of those particular disagreements. So I would ask everybody, let's breathe through our nose. Let's not get so excited and hyperventilate about what we saw earlier this week in terms of the meeting between our president and the president of Russia. We're in a good place. America is always in a very, very solid place because of our founding, because of our practices, because of our principles, our morals, our values, and the nature of what we stand for and the example we set for the world. We still are a beacon of incredible light and calling all of those who want to be a part of this great nation, come on and join us. We're better because of you. Follow the rules, play well with each other, be courageous enough to be honest with each other, and we're going to be quite all right. Folks, we're, we're going to be fine as a result of this summit. And the United States always, always sets an example in terms of how it should operate internationally. So I would ask us all, let's breathe through our nose. And let's take this thing in stride. We're going to be okay. Sir, if I may jump in to your point about not getting sidetracked or distracted by the process. So much of the discussion that came out of the summit was about the process of it, what it looked like, how it was observed, and some of the things that were criticized are relevant. Our geopolitical intelligence group here at Academy has consistently put Russia on the top of the major threat to the United States. Can you, in very specific terms, talk about what those threats are from a national security perspective so that we can remain focused on those as opposed to where the discussion is today? Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, I would say, first and foremost, Russia is a nuclear power. They have an arsenal of nuclear weapons. They have the ability to deliver those. And they have, in the past, engaged with the United States in both SALT and START talks, strategic arms limitation talks, and strategic threat reduction talks. And we've achieved a level of success in dialing back the level of that threat. Clearly, those nukes still exist, but they exist in smaller numbers, and we have some verification protocols so that we feel more comfortable about it. The problem is nuclear proliferation is an existential problem, and the primary concern that I have with nuclear proliferation is the inevitability of an accident. A rational person can sit back and can intellectualize through all the reasons not to employ nukes. But the mere fact that you have nukes is it's a deterrence. That's really what we're talking about is deterrence theory. But an accident can occur, and we've seen the potential for accidents in the past. So Russia is a nuclear power. We have to be able to address Russia in a cooperative way so that we can continue to dial down the threat of a nuclear accident. That's number one. Number two, Russia has forever, it's in its DNA, stirred up activities along its near abroad. On its borders, they've created incidents so that the world focuses in on that incident and spends less time looking 
at what Russia is doing internally to its own people and what it's doing within its own borders. But Napoleon tried to invade Russia. Germany tried to invade Russia. Russia legitimately feels like it's routinely threatened. NATO existed as a defensive deterrent, not an offensive deterrent, but Russia felt threatened. We could, in fact, engage Russia, and we could, in fact, based on circumstances and based on very specific individual criterion, Russia at some point, it's not inconceivable that Russia at some point could be a part of NATO. It's a long way off. Surely aspirational at this point, but it is possible. So Russia remains a national security challenge that we need to address. And also, it has a very large, capable military. If it were to engage with the United States, it would lose. It would lose. The United States would defeat the Russian military handily. But they have enough capabilities to cause enough damage on a tactical level that would really threaten and risk the viability of our partners within NATO. That's the biggest challenge. The good part about NATO vis-a-vis Russia is that it becomes a moderating influence to what I call behavior that is very difficult to control and often can become very vitriolic, can become extemporaneously explosive. When you're a member of a large organization, there are built-in governors that keep that type of volatility down. So NATO provides that great opportunity for the United States to engage in Europe vis-a-vis Russia in a very positive way, Russia remains very much a part of our national security discussions. And then can we talk about next steps? There's already discussion about inviting President Putin to the United States for a follow-on summit. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question, Andy, because on the heels of this summit, that literally is, it just happened earlier this week, uh, there is now an announcement that the president has invited Putin to come to the United States. Two views of that. Number one is, the very positive view is, this is ongoing dialogue that needs to take place. Russia is at that level in terms of a competitor that needs to be brought into the tent, as they say, so that we can begin to continue the process of engagement at multiple levels, whether that's diplomatic, informational, on the military level or the economic level. We have to be able to continue to talk with Russia. The old expression, I'd rather jaw-jaw than I would war-war. And we need to be able to jaw-jaw with Russia. So the good news is we've invited Putin back, and we're going to try to continue the dialogue in a very fulsome in a very discreet and a very precise way. On the other hand, the second view is very cynical. We're inviting Putin back because the president feels like he blew it. He needs to have a redo. He needs to get Putin over here on his own turf so he can embrace him and feel a little more comfortable so we don't have gas, so we don't have babble speak, we don't have the IC being thrown under the bus, we don't have this monster embrace of this murderous leader of Russia, et cetera, et cetera. That's the cynical view. That'll happen. So I, I understand that. I'm, I'm taking the, the former path, which is makes perfect sense to have the, the president of Russia come to the United States so we can continue the dialogue, just like we need to continue the dialogue with North Korea to make sure we're scoring points there as well. And then just on the back end of that, obviously, one of the main topics of discussion is Russia's meddling with elections. So then we also have a timeline to consider, correct? We have the elections coming up in November. The summit happens within there. Obviously, this election is going to be very closely looked at from that standpoint. 
Absolutely, Andy. The challenge of cyber espionage uh, vis-a-vis Russia is real. I mean, look, Russia did engage and did meddle in our election in 2016. But let me remind everybody, they've been doing that for decades, not necessarily online, but they've been meddling in our elections and have run sources within our democracy for the longest time and have had folks at the very highest levels trying to influence our activities of governance and to figure out what we're thinking and where we're investing our money and where our next moves will be internationally and globally. How do they affect Russia? Russia, that's what Russia does. So the fact that new tools are available, that is to say they're doing it online, is simply another capability that they have to do what it is they do. They will get involved in these elections in 2018. Absolutely. That is, uh, I think, without debate. So it is important that the United States continue to engage And again, we reserve the right to not only respond to Russia's meddling, but to respond to Russia's meddling in any number of ways. We've got elements of power that we can use. We just don't necessarily have to be symmetric in our responses. There are things that the United States can do to make it very difficult and to disincentivize Russia's participation and attempt to influence our elections. So, Peter, in summary, uh, how's the market doing? What have we seen in the market over the course of the last week? The summit didn't really have much of an impact on the market. The market actually wound up focusing by the end of the week on Powell's testimony. Trump actually talking about whether the Fed is hiking too quickly, which is something I agree with, and really on China trade, where the consensus is now starting to follow what we have been saying, which is a trade war is coming, and it's going to be long, and it's going to be harder than people thought. So that's what the market's kind of digesting, is what are going to be the impact of the trade war? What's it going to do to the Fed? And the Russia summit, although really politically interesting, really didn't have much of an effect on the market. Thank you so much for that, Peter. Thank you, and have a great week. Hey, and thank you, Rachel, and thank you especially to Major General Spider Marks. We really appreciate your perspective on this, folks, and also we appreciate your listening to our podcast. Academy Securities is a services-abled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you have any questions about any geopolitical, macro, or even leadership topics, as you can see here, Spider is definitely an expert in that area as well. If you have an interest in engaging with our team directly, feel free to email us at info at academysecurities.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please share this with anyone you feel may be interested. Also, please subscribe so you can catch future episodes as they hit. Thank you so much for the support, and we'll talk to you next week.